What will you say you did on your summer vacation? Chances are, it'll be tame compared to what today's guests on Travel with Rick Steves have gone through for the sake of a little adventure. Ever since he was a boy, Harry Rutstein has been fascinated by the exotic journey Marco Polo wrote about in his 13th century travel memoir, Descriptions of the World. Harry fulfilled his boyhood dreams retracing the fabled Silk Road trade route Marco Polo took from Venice to China. He'll tell us what it taught him in just a bit. Richard Starks and Miriam Murcutt thought they were setting out on a straightforward writing assignment for a British magazine. Their task? To document a strange river that seemingly defies logic by flowing uphill through the jungles of Venezuela. But what started out as a routine job quickly turned into a perilous adventure, complete with poisoned Yanomami arrows and the guns of FARC guerrilla kidnappers. Intrepid adventurers who broke the mold and lived to tell the tale in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. 13,000 miles overland from Venice to China. A thousand miles down a mystifying river in the jungles of South America. Those are the destinations today on Travel with Rick Steves. Marco Polo was the first European we know about to actually trade with China. Seven centuries after his death, an American named Harry Rutstein became captivated by the stories of that ancient traveler. After years of research, three attempts, and a decade of obstacles, Rutstein succeeded in retracing Marco Polo's 13th century route through the fabled lands of nomads and warlords of Central Asia. He'll tell us about his adventure a little later in the hour. We'll start today's travel with Rick Steves with a couple of scientific adventurers who found more than they bargained for in the jungles of Venezuela while following the course of a mysterious river. Whether it's inspiration for planning your own next excursion or simply helping you plan your summer reading with a good dose of vicarious adventure, there's room for you on our voyage, and we're just getting underway. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travelers fantasize about going to places that, until modern times, were called here be dragons on the map. Places that are so remote that when you encounter locals, they hardly know how to respond to you. Think about the tropical interior of South America, where Brazil, Venezuela, and Colombia all come together. And then put yourself on a little boat and imagine going a thousand miles over about a month. Well, that's what Richard Starks and Miriam Murcutt did. And they wrote a book about it called Along the River That Flows Uphill. Richard and Miriam, thanks for joining us. Oh, pleased well, to be you. here. What an adventure you have. Now, you, you call this off-the-map travel. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, um, it was off the map as far as we were concerned. Uh, we couldn't plan a route. We were relying on some other people, um, a Bari Indian guide that we had contacted to show us the way along the Orinoco, uh, through the Kazakiari onto the Rio Negro, and to allow us to have access to some Yanomami Indian villages on our way. So he was our map, essentially. Yeah, I was wondering about that, because when I travel, I just think, I need a map and a good guidebook, and just let me go. But in there, you probably needed a living guide, so you, you actually hired a guide to go with you who had been on the river. Oh, well, that, that was essential, yes. Right. I mean, first of all, uh, we needed someone who would have a boat that we could travel on. I mean, for all practical purposes, we needed a boat. We weren't going to build one ourselves, and so we luckily found a guy who uh, had a boat that plied up and down the upper reaches of the Orinoco, and he took us on board with him. You're going from the Orinoco River to the Amazon on the Casiquiare River, is that right? Yes, that's right. The purpose of the journey really was to travel along the Casiquiare River, uh, which is a river that is extremely unusual. In fact, it's unique in the world to the extent that it flows over a watershed and therefore unites the uh, Orinoco River system with the um, Amazon River system. Well, now that's the title of your book, Along the River That Flows Uphill. How can that be? Well, of course, no rivers can flow uphill. But uh, as I say, what this river does is it flows across the watershed that divides these two other river systems. So is that like a continental divide of some sort? No, it's not as severe as that. But basically, a watershed is a system that divides any two river systems. So that if rain falls on one side, it goes into one river system. And if it falls on the other side, it goes into another river system. So it's going over a, basically over a crest. Yeah, it is. Yes. Oh, okay. And that, of course, is something that should not theoretically be possible and in fact, the Cassiquiare is the only river in the world that uh, managed to achieve that particular uh, feat. I think living in the United States, you, you tend to think of, you know, the continental divide. and You, you think of a, a high peak and something flowing to the Pacific, the other side flowing to the Atlantic. But of course, you know, we're talking about an essentially flat area. 
the right. Amazon, you know, the Amazon River Basin area. You just need a small hump there. You don't need yeah. a big peak. But in your book, you mentioned that the Amazon goes 1,900 miles inland, and it, at that point, it's only 350 feet above sea level. So that is a very slow-moving river. Well, that's right. I mean, Iquitos is the port. It's, uh, it is 1,900 miles from the sea, and as you say, it's 350 feet above sea level. You know, that whole area, it's about a third of the South American continent, is extremely flat. Okay. Now, you started your trip, I understand you flew into Caracas, Venezuela, and this is right. Hugo Chavez country. You guys are, Richard, you're British. Miriam, where are you from? I'm English as well. British okay, as well. so now... Uh, no, actually, we're just, sorry, we're both Americans as well. Yes. <laughs> um, so we have, uh, in fact, I have um, uh, triple citizenship. I, in fact, happen to be Canadian, but uh, I was born in England, but we are now um, Americans. I, if I was to meet you on the streets, I might not know if you're English or American because of your accents. How were you received in Venezuela? What was the sort of feeling about Europeans or Americans on the streets? Well, we weren't uh, received in a particularly friendly fashion. I mean, first of all, it's, it's quite difficult for me to integrate into a country where people are shorter and very dark because I happen to be extremely tall and fair. So um, you do stand out and people do tend to think that tall, fair-haired people are American. And so that was the assumption that was made in Caracas, and it did result in some hostilities from some people in Caracas. We didn't feel totally at ease in that city. I think it's a difficult city for anybody. In a case like that, would you, uh, if they asked you where you're from, would you say Britain, or would they treat British people and American people the same? Uh, well, I think uh, in my case, I'd probably say Canada, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it tends to be a safest country uh, to come from, because um, most people don't know very much about it. Convenient. Okay, well, now you're getting set up. You're taking off on a one-month-long, thousand-mile trip through the most remote place I can imagine. Let me just ask you some general questions about your adventure. First of all, it was very remote. Do they use a national currency there, or do they barter, or how, how does that work? Once we were on the river, of course, uh, there was no bartering or no exchange of money of any kind at all. I mean, we were dependent to some extent on the guide who um, supplied the boat um, with pretty much everything we needed before we set off, except for water and some fruit that they managed to get from the jungle. Mm. But, and uh, also fish, of course. They caught, they caught a lot of fish on the river. So your guide really but, was providing uh, a tour that you were taking. He was providing the instruction, the transportation, and the uh, food. Well, yes, that, that you, could, you could describe it as a tour, but what I would say rather an informal one. Um, I mean, other than the itinerary being along the river, uh, we weren't told on, you know, day one you go to El Sejal, day two, you know, you go to um, a rubber plantation, day three you do this. It was uh, a much more haphazard event than that. I mean, this was a guide who very much enjoyed the jungle environment, and we essentially were helping him through our desires to see the jungle and also through the money we were giving him to live the life that he wanted to live. And so it was a fairly, he was a very casual guide, a very good one, actually. His knowledge was incredibly deep, but it was a casual trip. What was the daily routine on the river then? To a large extent, you spend quite a bit of time uh, watching the jungle go by because uh, we were traveling a long distance. So therefore, we did travel most of the day and um, indeed through much of the night. The routine tends to be um, getting up in the morning, having a shower and trying to get dry after the humidity of the night, having a meal, sitting down, reading, writing, uh, making notes about the journey and uh, watching a large amount of jungle go by. But then we were also um, lucky enough to get off the boat to look at various villages en route, um, some defunct rubber plantations, missionary villages, the Yanomami villages, also some Kurapakao Indian villages. So that broke up the routine on the boat, but you did because of the humidity and heat tend to get up very, very early. And that was worthwhile because seeing the dawn come over the jungle was actually a, a very wonderful experience, as indeed was seeing the sunset. During the day, it was kind of trickier. Now, you've got different groups of uh, characters that you would, you would cross as you go up a river like this. You've got indigenous people. You've got profit seekers that are taking advantage of local resources like rubber. You've got missionaries. You've got drug runners. What was the kind of population you encountered? It was a very varied population, wasn't it, Richard? Uh, yes. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of Indian villages that we um, visited as we went along. We did run into quite a lot of the uh, members of the National Guard from the uh, Venezuelan National Guard, which quite heavily policed that area because for much of the um, Orinoco route that we took, it forms the border with Colombia. and There's quite a bit of drug smuggling across the border. So we had a few police stops, and uh, we also, as Miriam says, went into some rubber plantations. 
and um, one or two missionaries too. Actually, the the National Guard were quite a frightening group to come across because they were essentially, you know, armed teenagers in t-shirts and and sunglasses. And you did feel as uh, if you you know you made a step wrong, and then it wouldn't be looked upon too kindly. So they they were difficult. So these are heavily armed teenagers that have speedboats that stop your boat and come on and inspect. That's what happened. Yeah, wow. they did at one point, yeah. And they could be corrupt themselves. I think the National Guard is, is pretty much recognized that the National Guard in that part of Venezuela is indeed very corrupt, yes. With guns. For example, um, some of the illegal mining villages we went into, essentially the, the miners were mining for gold and panning for gold in protected areas, national park areas. Wow. Uh, there were civil guard posts a mile up the river. Uh, and they'd clearly been paid off. They just turned a blind eye to this type of illegal mining operation. So you dealt with teenage National Guards looking for drugs being smuggled from Colombia to Venezuela. Was the general population carrying guns or bows and arrows? Some of the uh, Yanomami Indians we met uh, obviously were carrying bows and arrows and, in fact, guns, uh, but purely for hunting. Mm -hmm. But generally, the people we met, no, they were not armed. Now, there's not many white tourists there from the rich world, are there? Very, very few. I mean, uh, Puerto Ayacucho was our sort of kicking off point. Uh, we went from there to Samariaipo, which is where the road runs out and river travel begins. And I don't think we saw a single other tourist in Puerto Ayacucho. No, not at all. Did you get a sense that there was law and order or was it just sort of tribal um, chaos? I wouldn't have called it chaos, but uh, definitely you felt as if you were at the um, the edge of civilization, sort of what I imagine the Wild West might have been um, in an America in the 1880s, uh, to the extent that you'd reached the limit of uh, any sort of law and any kind of order. So you were pretty much on your own, and uh, whatever happened, you had to deal with it in your own way. And there was a, a fairly heavy police presence in Puerto Ayacucho, but of course that town is just on the opposite side of the river from Colombia. So they're, you know, only a few miles apart. And Puerto Ayacucho is a town through which um, cocaine passes, you know, from Colombia en route to various countries of the world. Now, Miriam, as a, as a woman in this area, how was your experience different than Richard's? Oh, I can't really, really say that it was. I mean, I suppose in some ways when we met with the Yanomami Indians, I would have expected to have more of a rapport with the women than I did. It was very difficult to bridge the cultural gap there. Right. Um, other than that, I can't see there was any difference well, in the way Richard or I were treated. Next, Richard and Miriam will tell us about their encounters with the Yanomami Indians on their expedition. You might have studied them in a college anthropology class as the fierce tribal people whose first contact with outsiders was just a few decades ago. There are more surprises along the river that flows uphill, just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. And coming up, we meet a man who retraced Marco Polo's overland route to China by organizing expeditions of his own. The adventures are well worth writing home about today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Richard Starks and Miriam Murcutt, and they've had an incredible journey and written about it. Their book is called Along the River That Flows Uphill. 
Reading this book, my, my favorite part was when you came upon the Yanomami tribe. They're known as the most violent tribe on earth. Tell me what it was like to, to come into a Yanomami village. Well, we followed Lucho into the Yanomami villages because we had read something of their reputation before we left. And we were definitely relying on him to pave our way into these villages and introduce us and make sure that we, you know, had the correct protocol. So this is your guide? Yeah, well, you see, Lucha was a Bari Indian, or is a Bari Indian, and he had lived with the Yanomami for a couple of years. And so he understood their culture and he also spoke their language because very few of the Yanomami in Venezuela actually speak Spanish. And so the communication is extremely difficult. But now describe the people, what they wear, uh, the piercings, the arrow canes. This is just like out of a 1930s National Geographic magazine, it seems like. The Yanomami that we met are semi-acculturated. The Yanomami have moved from the highlands deep in the rainforest down to the rivers. And their dress and their habits have changed slightly uh, in that move. But the normal dress in these river communities now is either a loincloth or baggy shorts or cast-off T-shirts. The women are bare-breasted. They wear woven straps around the upper part of their body and they carry their babies in slings land around their waists. They have indeed painted their faces uh, with a, a red natural dye called otoño and they do, many of them, wear facial sticks, five-point facial sticks through the nose, the cheeks, the lower lip, which, in fact, are meant to imitate the whiskers of a jaguar. But when you see them from a distance, they look as though they've been shot in the face by arrows. So they actually have, like, skewers sticking through their cheeks. Well, the women do, yes, Um, a a large number of them, and also some of the children. Okay, and then talk about the string that traditionally the men would wear. It's traditionally a penis string, but we didn't see this. And what it is is the string looped around the men's waist and then threaded through their foreskin, tied through their foreskin, and that flattens their penis against their bodies. But we actually didn't see that because, indeed, some of the Anamami still continue that practice. But uh, most of the Anamami men we saw were wearing shorts or dirty underpants or, in some cases, just long T-shirts with nothing underneath. So you saw the more cosmopolitan Yanomami. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and uh, we also didn't try um, and imitate their fashions very much. Well, that's probably a good idea. (laughs) I think so, yeah. You you know, they're famous for their uh, local drug, Yopo. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Yeah. that's correct. Tell me about that. What do you know about this Yopo? Well, it's it's a very strong um, hallucinogenic drug, which the uh, men use primarily to um, communicate with the uh, spirit world and also to um, help them relax. What they do with it is they um, put it in a very, very long or about a uh, sort of a yard long pipe and uh, blow the fumes of it up one another's nostrils. And by all accounts, it gives them a a tremendous high, but at the same time also an excruciating headache. And is that why they have green snot dangling from their nose? (laughs) Well, that's that's actually correct. Does it make their nose run? Is that the deal? I mean, that's what you wrote about, and it was quite a vivid image. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think, well, one of the first anthropologists to encounter them, that's the first view he had of the, um, the oh, Anamami, okay. was a, a group of Indians who had obviously been um, indulging in Yopo and did have quite a lot of green slime hanging from their nostrils. Uh, and uh, that was, in fact, the first impression that he got of them. And I think that that um, shaped his impression for quite a long time to okay. come. But what we saw more frequently was uh, Yanomami men with wadges of tobacco wedged into their lower lip, okay. um, which they suck on as a form of stimulant. Now, you said a third of the Yanomami men traditionally suffer violent deaths? Uh, statistically, that's, that's correct, yeah. Oh, wow. And now you bought some number 10 fish hooks in the big city in anticipation of needing to bribe people. Did that ever come in handy? It wasn't really so much as a bribe. They were more gifts to oh, pave gifts. the way. So they, they definitely came in handy, particularly when the tobacco that we had been told to bring as well uh, was rejected by one of the heads of one of the villages. And he flung that back literally at our well. feet. And luckily, we could produce the number 10 fish hooks out of our back pocket, which sort of saved the day. Well, gifts to pave the way. I guess that's not quite a bribe, but it comes in handy, huh? Well, it certainly did, yes. Right at the very end of your book, you talk about a confrontation with the uh, FARC guerrillas. It it seems very dangerous to travel there. When you got home, you must have felt like, that was really dangerous what we just did. Well, it was, but the minute we arrived home, actually, my next-door neighbor's dog actually attacked me when I was (laughs) 
coming yeah, up with yeah, my way but, to the house. But these so farks, I thought, this is great. <laughs> these FARC these far guerrillas, these are Colombian uh, guerrillas that used to be a political group, and now most people just consider them a criminal group. Is that right? Yes, they pretty much are. I mean, they did start life with political uh, ambitions, left-wing uh, political ideals, but in the last 20 or 30 years, they've sort of morphed into what is essentially a full-time criminal gang. Okay. And uh, they make money by um, smuggling drugs from Colombia through Venezuela in, into North America, and also by kidnapping people and holding them for ransom. I mean, what, they have 40 or 50 Westerners that are chained to trees and just keep them there for years? They've got vastly more than 40 or 50 hostages. I mean, several hundred. We, we but Westerners, Americans and Brits and so on. Well, they've captured in the past around 32 Americans, but okay. I don't think they're holding any at the moment. The last three, which were contractors, they were freed um, a couple of years ago. Okay. Well, that was nice of them, I guess. Tell me about that experience you had with the FARC guerrillas. This came uh, very near the end of our um, journey. We had traveled all the way down the Casiguiare. We did think that the journey was pretty much over and that we'd sort of reached a state of mission accomplished, if you like. And so uh, we felt that a, a degree of celebration was called for. We decided to cross the river, the Rio Negro that we were on, from one side to the other to uh, visit a place called San Felipe, which was in Colombia. What we didn't realize at the time, of course, was that San Felipe had come under the control of um, FARC guerrillas. And before we managed to get any lunch and enjoy our celebration, they tried to kidnap us and uh, hold us for ransom. Initially, there was just one guerrilla uh, who confronted us, but he quite quickly got some reinforcements. And uh, before fairly long, I think they were up to about 12 or 14. But luckily, um, Lucho, our guide, he managed to create some diversions and he uh, actually went and tried to talk to the FARC gorilla while we went back in the boat we brought across from the Venezuelan side of the river. We managed to escape back from Colombia onto the Venezuelan side of the river again. Lucho maintaining that the FARC wouldn't hurt him because he was, you know, he was Venezuelan, he was an Indian, he had no money, they had no use for him. So they had in mind just holding you guys and charging, what, 20,000 bucks to let you lose? Yeah, they claimed that they, uh, they wanted $20,000 from us before they would release us. But of course, the danger always is if you could, in fact, come up with $20,000, which is kind of a hard thing to do anyway in the jungle, uh, they would simply demand another 20000 and then another 20000 until he had nothing left. Uh, at which point you probably were going to be uh, shot, which is the normal fate of most of the people they kidnap. And in the interim, you'd have a fairly miserable time being tied up um, to yeah. a tree in, the, in their jungle encampments. I, I, I read that you said they had two of their kidnapped victims tied up, chained together 15 inches apart for several years. Uh, yes, one of the Americans that they captured in uh, 2002, and he was held for about six months with another prisoner that they'd uh, captured. He was a Colombian senator. The two of them were chained together, literally, for six months with a 15-inch uh, chain. And uh, so they, they lived together, they breathed together, they slept together, they did absolutely everything together for six months. This is their necks. Uh, their necks were chained yeah, their within, necks, yeah. within 15 inches of each other for six That's months. That's correct. I mean, it was, it's just oh, um, one thing to be held, obviously, but uh, the conditions under which you are held are extremely and unnecessarily cruel. So that would have been a horrible way to end your vacation. Um, yes, it would the have worst. been a downer. <laughs> would have been a bit of a downer. Okay, so it? I remember reading in your book, you actually broke into a sprint, you got under the boat, and then you f went to the other side of the river. So you went from Colombia over to Venezuela? That's correct, yeah. Now, all along the way, was there a difference in security or, or how comfortable you felt either in Colombia or Venezuela? Uh, well, not really. I mean, when you start the journey, you start off on the Orinoco, which is, in fact, at that particular point in the journey, the border between Colombia and Venezuela... But then as you go further upstream on the Orinoco, you go further into Venezuela and away from Colombia. So you leave the border. Okay. And at that point, you're, you're far more secure. And it's only when you come back to the Rio Negro at the other end of the Casiquiare that you can, in fact, get back to the border again with Colombia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Richard Starks and Miriam Murcutt, and they've written a book called Along the River That Flows Uphill, recounting their experience sailing a thousand miles of a river called the Casiquiare that goes right along the border of Venezuela and Colombia. Okay, now there are people listening, and there are people all over the world who are intrigued by this and actually are setting out on adventures like this that by any reasonable estimate are just bloody dangerous. When you got home in one piece, how did you assess the risk of this, and, and what were the lessons you learned? While we were on the journey, to some extent, we did um, assess some of the risks that we were facing, and in particular in relation to um, adventurous travel like this. 
we did sort of um, try and come up with not a formula, but a way of thinking about risk in relation to travel. Obviously, the things that you have to be concerned with are things like the probability of something dangerous occurring, um, the adverse consequences if, in fact, that something does occur, and uh, the length of time you might be exposed to it. When we came back, we realized that, in fact, we could have assessed two of these things quite well, but to assess the probability of something happening was extremely difficult. And uh, this is something you need to do before you set out on a journey like this. But also you have to recognize that the chances of you getting it right are extremely remote. So you just have to proceed anyway if you know what the dangers are. What we really lacked uh, very much was a plan B. We definitely didn't have a plan B and we should have done. Uh, even though we were traveling with a group of people, we were the only two Americans or foreigners, if you like, on the boat. There is some safety in numbers, um, mm -hmm. which probably I would recommend traveling with you know, four people anyway. But definitely you have to sit down before you go, which we didn't do, and make a list of these sort of life-threatening things that could go wrong. Not little things like a dirty hotel room, but the life-threatening Oh, yeah, things. but like when you're the only Westerners on a boat or something like that. I've been the only Westerner with my, my buddy on a bus in Morocco, and when the police stop the bus, they go right to you. You stick out like rich and vulnerable sore thumbs. So it doesn't matter if you're in a group of people. You are the two Westerners on that boat that makes you particularly susceptible to the risks that come with traveling there, I would think. Uh, I think that's true. And one way is to not stick out so much and uh, really dress down. Right. And get out those dirty old clothes and don't wash your hair every day. And, uh, you know, hmm. in my case, try and be six inches shorter than you really yeah. are. <laughs> now, also, when we, when, when we think about going to these far and unvisited reaches of this planet, you find some of the most fascinating cultures, but you're dealing with the ethics of visiting a tribe that is essentially disconnected with the rest of the world. What ethics did you struggle with in that regard? And uh, what's your take on being fascinated by the Anomami and then actually going there with your camera? Well, you know, it's the two-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, it's, we weren't the first people to set foot in Yanomami villages. They had had their lifestyle violated in the past by missionaries who tried to convert them to Christianity and has caused, you know, confusion amongst the Yanomami tribes people. Um, they've had anthropologists invade their territory. The anthropologists, in fact, have been accused of inciting some of the um, mm. violence amongst the Yanomami by offering them, you know, gifts and incentives for cooperating with their research. They've had their blood taken even for use in experiments. And then they've also been invaded by illegal miners who've been desecrating their territory by their mining operations. And now, as you say, we are the adventure travelers, but we did bring them things. Mm. Um, we have an awareness now of what the problems are. We are in a position, if we wish to, when you visited these people, to try and help in different ways to preserve their lifestyle. But it's, it's a very, very, very difficult call. Well, if you're going to go there, I think it comes, if you want to do it ethically, with a responsibility when you go to advocate for their well-being back in the rest of the world, I guess. Isn't that some positive spin on it, to be empathetic with their struggles? Um, yes, I think it is. But, I mean, just by being there and just observing people, I mean, you are to some extent changing the way they live because obviously you are bringing to them contact with the outside yeah. world that they're not necessarily familiar with and haven't yet fully adjusted to. And isn't necessarily positive. No, I, I think that it's a great ethical issue. And Miriam mentioned that their blood had even been taken. And you might think, well, so what? But wasn't that a kind of a desecration to their culture? And isn't that a big deal to the Yanomami that their blood never came back? Yes, it is, because the Yanomami believe that when they die, in order for their spirits to um, properly be laid to rest, all parts of their body must be uh, cremated, and that includes the blood that, in fact, has been taken from them. So as long as that blood is missing from their culture, they feel that, uh, to some extent, their ancestors have been violated and cannot properly be laid to rest. Well, now, that right there is a powerful example of how we can do harm to those people and be completely oblivious to how we're doing it. Oh, I don't think necessarily that the people who took the blood were oblivious to the harm that they were causing. And certainly they were in violation of um, something that's called the Nuremberg Code, which is a code that was set up after the Second World War that was hmm. related to experiments conducted on human beings. Uh, and certainly I don't think the Yanomami knew, were fully informed about why their blood was being collected and, and how it was going to be used. And had they been, I think they would have said no. Well, this is a complex challenge for cultures when they rub against each other. And when we travelers reach out to some of those cultures, I think it does come with these ethical issues. It's a very um, 
poverty-stricken tribe, it sounds like. The kids have little spindly legs and distended bellies. Uh, you mentioned there's two words for hunger. Tell me about those. Oh, yes. The Yanomami essentially are vegetarian, but not necessarily from choice. They like to eat meat whenever they can. So they have two words for hungry, one which means, yeah, my stomach's full, and the other one which means my stomach's full, but I really crave meat. I'm sorry, don't you mean my stomach's empty? No, no, it's, no. it's, it's really um, an indication of how much they um, appreciate meat. I mean, um, they always want to eat, they're always hungry, but I mean, basically they do say my stomach is full, and uh, my stomach is full, but I crave meat. Oh, so right. they will continue to eat, in other words, if they did in fact have um, access to any meat. I'm speaking with Richard Starks and Miriam Murcutt. They've written a book called Along the River That Flows Uphill, recounting their experience sailing a thousand miles up a river that connects the Orinoco with the Amazon, deep in the tropical heart of South America. At the end of your book, you're talking about the British standards of risk for adventure travel. This is something when we go to Europe we don't have to concern ourselves with, but this BS8848, British standards, and then 8848 meaning the meters of height of Mount Everest. Tell us what that actually means and of what value is that for somebody who's considering an adventure trip. Well, I think the intention was, the standards were developed uh, at the instigation of the Royal Geographical Society in London, and they're intended to set some good management standards for companies that are involved in setting up adventure travel trips so they can look down this suggested list of standards and say, yes, we meet this requirement, we, we don't meet this requirement, we should improve here. And it's not intended to entirely take the risk out of adventure travel, but it is intended to, to minimise that risk, evaluate it, and most importantly, to decide and have plans that if something goes wrong, we know what we're going to do. Richard and Miriam, if you could kind of sum up one image that you take away from your trip that that really um, brings you back to the river. What's the most vivid souvenir you have among your memories that way? Well, I think it's probably the vision of the Yanomami man who drew his bow with his poison-tipped arrow and pointed it at Richard's chest because he was offended by the fact that Richard, even though quite a distance from him, was trying to take a photograph. And it just made me realize that um, you have to be much more aware of other people's cultural norms. Wow. What a trip. (laughs) That's quite an image. Richard, do you have an image? Um, Probably the same one. Well, (laughs) partly the same one. But I think also um, one thing I do remember is how relieved I felt when we did get back to Venezuela after um, briefly going into Colombia. Before we left Venezuela, I was quite keen to get away from the uh, National Guard in the town of San Carlos, which is where we were, because I knew they were quite corrupt. But um, by the time we got back, I was extremely pleased to see them again. I bet. Was that after your FARC encounter? It was, yeah. I think anybody would look at after a FARC encounter. All right. Richard Starks (laughs) and Mary Merkett, along the river that flows uphill. Thanks for taking on a journey that a lot of us will never have the opportunity to experience. Best wishes. Okay, thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we travel overland across the barely tamed lands of Central Asia as Harry Rutstein tells us about the expeditions he organized to retrace the path of Marco Polo and what it taught him as he turned a childhood dream into 13,000 miles of action. We're at 877-333-RICK. A Marco Polo Odyssey is just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Merhaba, ben Mehlika Sevar. Rick Steves'le seyahat edelim. This is Turkish for saying, Hi, I'm Mehlika Seval. Let's travel with Rick Steves. Now in Turkish, Merhaba, ben Mehlika Seval. Rick Steves'le seyahat edelim. Well, we're all about travel here, and of course, one of the great travelers of all time is Marco Polo. What an odyssey. And we're joined by a man who may just be the first guy that actually retraced Marco Polo's entire journey, 13,000 miles from Venice all the way to China, and he joins us today. Harry Rutstein, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Now, you wrote a book called The Marco Polo Odyssey. In the footsteps of the merchant who changed the world. And that's, that's essentially Marco Polo. And you run an organization, uh, or you're the founder of the Marco yeah. Polo Foundation. Yes. It's so, and, and you said, in the footsteps of the merchant who changed the world. 
What's the big deal about Marco Polo? How could he change oh, the world? He made such a great contribution to the Western civilization. I mean, he introduced so many technologies. And in fact, Francis Bacon once said that the three most important things that changed the world was gunpowder, the printing press, and technologies that came from China. And gunpowder and printing press. Was well, compass was the third. Was really the third thing. Okay. Compass. So Marco Polo really yes. had he, because he was just a, a conduit. He sort of lubricated the that, trade. Channels. It was his book. His book described all of this. And okay. it, if he hadn't written the book, this would have never come to pass. So he actually had enough of a sense of history when he did his journey in the 1200s to write a book called "The Description of the World." Yes, that's essentially what his book tried to convey. And he knew what he was doing. He was blazing a new path. Nobody had written about this. Well, or, he, he was traveling with his father and uncle who were merchants. And uh, in the process, he got to meet the Kublai Khan. The Kublai Khan sent him on various missions around China. And as a result, he learned a great deal about China and a great deal about Asia. So did he have a dictaphone or a little laptop? Or how he did actually he did keep records. He did keep records because when he was in jail in Genoa, when his book was written, he had sent back to Venice to get some of the documents that he had collected. And then he used those references so that when he wrote the book 17 years later after getting back from China, okay. it was fairly accurate. Okay, but his book was really written essentially 17 years after he got back. Well, he was in China for 17 years, and then he was incarcerated in Genoa a few years later because he was captured by the Genoese. And while he was in jail, that's when he wrote the book. I guess when you got time on your hands, you can write a right. book of your memoirs. And what? he had some quite good memoirs. Yes, yes. And all of this was all new to the Western world. That was, that was the fascinating thing about it. Harry, is Marco Polo's route clear and undisputed, or do people debate exactly where he went? There's some debate. Uh, it, it took me about four years to uh, consolidate all the various translations of his book. There are about 136 manuscripts that are translations of the original book, and everybody who wrote a translation through his own uh, inf his own concept of, uh, of what his travels were. So many of the things were exactly the same, but there were some areas in the center part of his journey that was disputable. But essentially, he went from Venice by boat through yes. uh, around Greece, down to the Holy Land, uh, Jerusalem, right. and then back up to Anatolia, Turkey, right. and crossed all of Turkey and then went into Iran right. and did quite a bit of traveling in Iran before crossing Afghanistan and then north of the troublesome area in Pakistan that we were hearing in the news, yes. and then up into Tibet and China, all the way to Beijing. No, not to Tibet. He, did, he went into uh, Western China. He okay. talked, he wrote about Tibet in his book, but he never actually went there. So he circled north of Tibet. Yes, right. How does this relate to the fabled Silk Road? We hear a lot about the Silk well, Road. Well, it was a trade route. That's what they were following. It was one of the many Silk Roads. Silk Road was a term that was brought into uh, the Western uh, terminology in, in the 19th century. But before that, it were, they were trade routes. There were hundreds of trade routes. Okay. And this was just one of them. The unique thing about him was he was a European, but this was an established trade he route was, with the locals. Yes, he was one of the first Europeans to get into China. So my, my image is you have a caravan sarai, a place to park your camel right. and uh, you know get a good meal and share some information and lock up your goods uh, safely in a garage overnight. Right. You got all these sort of desert days ins all right. the way across the journey, right. pretty much um, spread out one day's camel march. That's apart. right, 25 miles. And the reason it's 25 miles, so a camel goes two and a half miles an hour. They go for 10 hours, 25 miles. So a camel has a pretty steady march yes. then, two yes. and a half miles an hour. And, in fact, as you read his book, you realize that he talks about distances and day's journey because it's it's a very accurate way of defining distance. A day's journey, 25 miles. 25 miles. And you could count on the fact that there would be a caravanserai every right. 25 miles. Yeah, a caravanserai is a combination of hotel, restaurant, mosque, and stable. Of all the caravanserai that you encountered on your trip, what was the best one? And, and, and well, a, they don't picture. exist today. There's none they, of them. I mean, I know yeah, you don't. There's some, there's some ancient, they're ruins. We, uh, we visited a number I mean, of ruins. ruins yeah. And there's one in Turkey that's uh, not far from Mount Ararat. It's a beautiful one. It was one time was a, was a castle. And there's some photographs in my book about it. So you, you encounter these ruined caravanserai today yes, when you make this yes. journey. Now, Harry, you did this journey in three different expeditions yes. uh, between 1975 and 1985. And you were frustrated by uh, sort of political roadblocks. Right? Uh, the, the one major one was that China had closed their western border in 1949, and they weren't about to open it for an American until I had the help of uh, then Vice President Bush, who interceded for me, and I finally got a visa. What company are you in? How many people have done this journey? Is this something that's oh, popular there are now? Many, many people have, have tried to follow. Many uh, uh, have, have not completed it. There are some who have actually uh, completed parts of it since I've made this journey. Okay. Did you try to use traditional means of transport? or I use the same philosophy of travel as Marco Polo, whatever it took to get from one town to the next. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. 
we did use camels. We did use donkeys. We did use jeeps, uh, sometimes buses and, you know, whatever we could find to get one place to the next. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're tracing Marco Polo's route here with uh, Harry Rutstein. And Harry writes the book, The Marco Polo Odyssey. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Peter's on the line in Ontario, California. Peter, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking me, Rick. Hello, Harry. Hi. Um, my question is, I know you, um, you retraced Marco Polo's uh, steps over the three expeditions, but if you could go back and start from scratch to retrace the, uh, his whole expedition, what would you do differently? Nothing. <laughs> uh, just, just try and do it in one continuous journey. Uh, but so much of that part of the world has, has changed a bit, but many parts are just as was when Marco Polo was there. You wouldn't change anything. You would just go for it. No, I would just go to because the itinerary I established, I felt was fairly accurate, and that was the route I would take, and I would use the same journey as next time. Harry, was there a section of the trip that you felt was the least changed or the most evocative? You know, relating well, to well, probably days? northern Afghanistan, and uh, northern Afghanistan is an area of the world that. Um, you don't want to really travel through anymore. Uh, that, that's why you don't hear any um, military activity up there because the desert there is so devastating. It, the sand is almost like talcum powder. And as you travel through it, you, you can't use donkeys. You can't use horses. You can't walk. You can only use camels who have large feet and trucks that have high wheels that are able to get across that type of sand. It, the sand is so fine that mm-hmm. when the truck goes through it, you don't see any uh, tracks. It just fills in like water. Wow. It's, it's, uh, you, you can't travel there in any other way. Peter, have you traveled in any of these corners? No, I, I would like to, but having a wife and a young daughter, I think it's going to have to wait a while. Well, maybe that's the beautiful thing about uh, Harry's book. You that, can, no, yeah, armchair traveling. You can do it vicariously. Definitely. Thanks for your call, Peter. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, Harry, you used, you refer in your book to Marco Polo's actual entries in his book. There's a lot of oral traditions, I think, that instructed Marco Polo. He wrote, for instance, the people of the city tell that it was here that Alexander took to wife the daughter of Darius. Balk, yes, in northern (laughs) Afghanistan. Bulk, that's a town? It was a major city. It was a city of a million people. And Marco Polo talked about how uh, Ganges Khan came there and killed every single one of them with 100,000 horsemen. Wow. So, But Marco Polo encountered oral traditions all along the way. Yes. He he talked about, in fact, in the first uh, introduction to his book, he talks about things I have seen myself and things I have heard of that I believe were true. Oh, he actually is that legalistic about his uh, writing down his perceptions and memories. Yes, yes. So he took it quite seriously. He knew that this was of historical value. Uh, apparently. Well, actually, I believe that he was trying to write a, a guidebook for merchants. Oh, and okay. He didn't get into the personal type things, but he talked about the culture. He talked about the geography. He talked about what industries were in each town and described the towns. This sort of thing that a merchant would want to know if he were traveling there. Now, you you traveled through... Christian territory, Muslim territory, Buddhist, Essentially Buddhist territory? Islamic. Mostly Islamic, huh? Mostly Islamic until you get into the uh, eastern part of China. But if you think about it, Turkey, Islamic, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, yeah. and, and western China. The interesting thing is that even though I'm a Westerner and recognized as a Westerner, I was beautifully received because the hospitality of the Islamic people is part of the Quran. In the Quran, it says uh, a foreign visitor is a gift from God. Treat him that way. Yes, where did you meet the most remote people, and what do you remember learning from them? Well, I think, again, in northern Afghanistan, more than 80% of the people live in the, in the countryside, and many of them are nomads. They're probably traveling and living the same as they did 700 years ago. Is this the area called the Hindu Kush? The Hindu Kush is the mountain range in the uh, eastern part of Afghanistan. And of course, it goes into the Pakistan. That's why my, my movie that I have a DVD of in the book is called On the Roof of the World with Marco Polo, okay. because that is the roof of the world. The four mountain ranges come together there. Did you ever see that movie, The Man Who Would Be King? Yes, yes. It's a yeah. Rudyard Kipling book, right? Yes, Basically. yes, yes, yes. One of the most beautiful movies, and that was supposed to be taking place there. I mean, Yes, right. And, that uh, must have been quite evocative for you having been there. Yes, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful part of the world. It's so primitive and yet so exotic. Harry Rutstein writes about his expeditions to retrace the Marco Polo route to China in his book, The Marco Polo Odyssey in the Footsteps of a Merchant Who Changed the World. The book includes a companion DVD called On the Roof of the World with Marco Polo. 
Harry also heads up the Marco Polo Foundation. Its mission, to promote education and appreciation of the accomplishments of this early traveler. Harry's website is marcopolofound.org. Bill in Seattle's on the line. Bill, thanks for your call. Yeah, hi, Rick. I got back from uh, Iran about two months ago, and it was a trip of a lifetime. Why? I have never been to a country where I felt more welcome, uh, were greeted by more friendly people, and I felt safer. And I've traveled a lot. Wow. Now, it was absolutely spectacular, and it's because of your Iran television program that I was inspired to go. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow, that is so nice to hear. And I was, uh, I, I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to go to Iran with our public television crew and then to bring home the show and then to feature uh, experts on Iran in our show in, in several hours. In Mark Twain's here. quote was, The enemy of hate and prejudice is travel. Now, you sound just like evangelical about America. Oh, Get over I, to Iran and meet these you, people. Right, right. Don't listen to the news. That's important. But go meet the people. Absolutely. They want to meet us. We should meet them. Now, Bill, a lot of people don't even know as an American that you can go to Iran. What sort of hoops did you have to go through as an American tourist vacationing in Iran? Americans, as you know, can only go as part of an organized tour. I found a group on the Internet out of Australia. Uh, I went with them. There were a group of seven of us. And as far as cost is concerned, it was about $3,500 round trip, including lodging and transportation for 10 days. Wow. So anybody can go online and just search for different tour companies. And basically, American tour companies partner with Iranian tour companies to make sure you're going through all the hoops and you've got to get your hotels. Exactly. And... You have to get your visa through the embassy of Pakistan. Uh, they were a little slow, but they came through with it. And once you get that visa, you're good to go. Now, Harry, you were in Iran a long time ago. This was yes, during. Uh, uh, I was sponsored by the Shah. By the Shah, right? How was your reception with the people there? Oh, the same way, same way. It's a, it's the most beautiful, most hospitable country in the world. So, regardless of their whatever dictatorship or government is running them, the people are worth meeting. Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, and they're beautiful people. I. Uh, they are. Yes. They are gorgeous people. So, Bill, did you feel safe on the streets of Iran? Absolutely. I I was. Uh, of course, a little nervous because I stand out. I'm not Iranian, but I felt completely safe morning, noon, and night. Did you go to Esfahan along the riverbank? I went to Esfahan, yes, absolutely. You mentioned these sites, and it just it just makes me smile. Marco Polo said Esfahan was the most beautiful city in the world, and I, I concur with that. I absolutely. It is the most beautiful man-made structures I've ever seen. Isn't that that Imam Square? Yes. It's just it is it brings you to your knees with its beauty and majesty and grace. It's just it is a sight to behold. And then you go as the the evening in the cool of the evening hours down to the riverbank and it seems like the entire city's there with their families having picnics on blankets. And their and their picnics it's just amazing. I suppose the one thing I missed in Iran was a glass of wine over dinner. It is a thoroughly dry country, that's for sure. It is. All right. <laughs> Bill, I'm glad you had a good time in Iran. It is because of you. Thanks, Rick. Okay. Happy travels, Bill. Yeah. All right. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking about uh, Marco Polo's Odyssey, and Marco Polo spent a lot of time in Iran. And we're talking with Harry Rutstein, who actually retraced Marco Polo's journey. Now, Harry, when we think of all these exciting places to go, you traveled quite extensively in Iran, and then you went across Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, it seems like barely out of the Middle Ages, even today. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I it's, mean, it's rope bridges, uh, areas that are under no government control. Well, these are nomads, and nomads, you, you can't conquer a nomad for one certain. They move on. So now that's an interesting issue is nomads don't quite fit the mold in the 21st century because governments want you to take your kids to the local school to learn the local laws and language and, and uh, customs, and they want you to have a house. And, and how do you down. tax a nomad? How do you tax a nomad? Yeah. yeah. And they, they want to put fences up, and you can't have fences and nomads. That's absolutely right. So nomads are almost by definition against modern governments. And uh, they have a, a way of life that gives them a lot of independence. They can survive any place. They just take their flock with them and live off their flock. So you traveled 13,000 miles did you encounter different nomadic groups? Was that a major part of the interaction? You see some in Iran, not as much. Uh, well, Afghanistan is really the the last of that, because governments just assert themselves. I know that's that. right, and they, in fact, they've been trying to do that in Afghanistan. Also, they allocated various lands for nomads to live in, but they uh, just 
picked up and went on. I would imagine, Harry, that a common experience across the board was the reception you received by the people that you encountered. Where did you find people aggressive? Where did you find them greedy? Where did you find them friendly? Where did you find them guarded? I had a little bit of uh, a problem in, in northern Afghanistan because it was Ramadan at that time, and the people don't eat during the day, and I get they get, get testy after not eating for a while. And, and in one town, Maimana, there was a guy following us with a shotgun every place we went. We Finally, we went back to the inn to find out what was going on, and he says, oh, that was a fellow assigned to you by the local authorities because they had decapitated two German tourists a few days before. So you thought the guy with the gun was tailing you, but actually yes, he was yeah, your guard. Yeah, we were thought he was looking to see if we were eating anything. What country was that in? That was in, uh, in a very small town in northern Afghanistan. So the local government probably said, yeah, we don't want any American blood in our hands here. Right, Why don't you right. tail this guy? So they were protecting us. This crazy American who's <laughs> going across Marco Polo's Odyssey. We've been talking with Harry Rutstein, and Harry's written a book called The Marco Polo Odyssey in the Footsteps of a Merchant Who Changed the World, a recounting of Harry's own retracing of that 12,000-mile journey that Marco Polo took in the 1200s. Harry is the founder of the Marco Polo Foundation. His website is marcopolofound.org. And Harry, if I think back on all of the adventure and all of the experiences that you share in your book, what's one most vivid, evocative memory that you take back that you'd like to leave us with? Isfahan, Iran. No question. It was a place that Marco Polo said was the most beautiful city in the world. And uh, everyone I've ever, even even today, it's it's just the same. It's a beautiful city with beautiful architecture. And the streets are lined with palm trees. The corners have fountains. It's a beautiful city. And I, of all the places I've visited, that is most memorable. Isfahan, right in the middle of the Marco Polo Odyssey. Thanks, Harry. Glad to be here. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We're assisted by Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Thanks to Evan Perkins at KGNU Radio in Boulder, Colorado, for technical help today. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travellers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from 36 exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe, from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.